Welcome to episode 236 of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. This show was recorded on Thursday, February 6, 2020. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA, where you'll always find a great selection of products at amazing prices with unparalleled customer service. For more information, just go to jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. Hey everybody, it's David from the Fredcast Cycling Podcast at www.thefredcast.com. I'm one of the hosts and producers of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast. For show notes, links, and all sorts of other information, please visit our website at www.the-spokesmen.com. And now, here are the spokesmen. Hi there, I'm Carlton Reed, and on today's show, I've got interviews with an India-born American urban designer and a Norfolk hospital doctor. The connection? Two of my recent articles on Forbes.com. The anonymous Dr. X is the cyclist involved in a shocking road rage incident captured by a following motorist's dash cam. But first, I'll roll the interview with Geeti Silwell of Perkins Will. She was one of the prime movers behind getting cars off Market Street in San Francisco. This initiative is just over a week old and boosted bicycling from the very first day. First of all, uh, congratulations on, on, on getting Market Street. I'd like to say, I wouldn't, I, I I'm not going to say closed... Because it's not closed, it's only just closed to motor vehicles. It's not actually, as many people say, the road is closed, is it? Right, that's right. And it's not closed to motor vehicles too. It's just closed to private vehicles, cars. So yes. you have um, you have the transit and you have commercial vehicles, you have emergency vehicles, and you have taxis still flying. So there are vehicles. It's not all it's not all vacated for people as yet. Was there much doom and gloom from media beforehand of saying, well, this will cripple the city. Let's see what happens, you know, tomorrow. And then everybody's surprised. What's, what's, what's been the media response before and after? Well, the media definitely, I think it's, there's a lot of excitement and there's a lot of buzz about really, we are reclaiming our streets and, we have an opportunity to kind of experience our city in a completely different fashion. Uh, to be honest, I personally did think that it might not have changed the experience of pedestrians because, yep, we're still on our sidewalks and there are still vehicles kind of moving in the, on the lanes. But uh, if you were to walk Market Street today for, and compare it to what it was even last week, it just is a huge change because the number of vehicles in the lanes are so few. And uh, personally, for people like me who love to jaywalk, I could just cross even when there was a red light and not feel that I was going to be hit by a vehicle. But it just felt so peaceful, so comfortable and just a completely different place. Um, And uh, I think what I've noticed is people are actually talking about it on the street. So just if you were to eavesdrop on pedestrians, and people kind of just crossing the street. It, you, everybody's talking about, oh, I took transit. And, you know, this was so fast. It's so much better. So um, there's 
a positive kind of a, a vibe and a response from media and people in general. And then uh, on social media, I saw lots of photographs uh, of the, the day it actually happened with lots and lots of cyclists. So has that carried on? Is it, the cyclists have, have carried on coming along the street? I think we'll, we'll definitely. Market Street has always been a very popular street for bicyclists. So during commute time, you do see um, a lot of people, a lot of bicyclists. Um, I think people will uh, start getting used to the fact that, oh, this is so much more safer than trying to kind of avoid Market Street and find other routes to get around. And um, I, I think in coming days, we'll probably see the uh, bicyclist mass grow in number that Market Street has always been popular. So and during commute hours, there's always a heavy bicycle is um, uh, bicycle traffic and i better just ask because market street is not like some minor side road M- market street is like a, a spine road through the center of of downtown san francisco isn't it that's right that's right it is our it is our uh, it is the identity of this of the city and it is the main spine and it had a lot of challenges primarily because there were just so many demands on that street it needed to serve as a, a commercial corridor with a whole lot of retail and, and and different segments it was the main street to financial financial districts of course a lot of vehicles and um and the number of transit routes that actually touch Market Street is phenomenally large. I can get back to you on the number. I don't have it on the top of my head. But if you consider the entire corridor, both at grade and below grade, because the BOT tunnel runs um, uh, runs uh, uh, along Market Street underground it, uh, and the Muni, there are a lot of transit um, routes that run along this corridor. So there are a lot of people getting in and out of, of the subway in the bot and on Market Street itself. So it is, there's definitely a lot of demand on Market Street. So you've been working, well, how long have you been working for Perkins and Wills? Um, I have been working for Perkins and Wills for over 18 years now. (laughs) Yeah. So you've been involved with this from the start thing, because it was like 10 years ago when Perkins and Wills got the contract to, to make changes? That's right. So, Carlton, let's let me just make it a little clear here in terms of our involvement. Perkins and Will was definitely the lead urban design consultant that had brought a team of designers and engineers and landscape architects and refining experts together to kind of compete for the Better Market Street project back in 2011, 2010, 2011. And um, that was that basically um, did. Uh, uh, start the whole, I mean, the whole project was with the premise that Market Street has to get redone because the utilities underground are, um, need to be replaced. They are, they have left their life. So why don't we take away this opportunity to kind of rethink uh, the image and the experience of Market Street? So that's how, how it really got started. And uh, the city's uh, agency, their different departments, the public works, the planning department and the transportation department all kind of came together and uh, collaborated to kind of really to rethink all of these different facets of Market Street. What is it? What does the utility want to be and how can we make it uh, um, such that it, it takes advantage of both the gray infrastructure and the green infrastructure? 
what do what does it mean for um, transit efficiency on the streets and how do we improve that? And uh, from an urban design planning perspective, really, it was about what is the look, feel, experience and character of the street. So the city kind of brought together a team that could address all of these aspects. And when we were engaged, we were looking at we were not charged to come up with one solution. We were asked to really explore the possibilities. So our three years of work actually led to um, proposing three potential paths for uh, Market Street. And my engagement, to be honest, was not from the very beginning. There was a large team, and you know how over three years of, of life of a project, people come and go. I was kind of engaged uh, um, on, the, on the latter half of the project, and I was project managing it in Perkinsonville, uh, along with Gale Architects out of Copenhagen and CMG Landscape Architecture here locally. Uh, we were the key design players helping really think about the possibilities and come up with the options of what if we were to prioritize transit on Market Street? And uh, um, what if uh, there was a dedicated bike lane that basically was sharing some curbs, uh, curb to curb space with transit and vehicles versus bicyclists sharing space with pedestrians versus cars? being uh, limited on Market Street, there were very many options we explored. So, sorry, this was a long answer, but the whole idea was that we explored a number of options and we came up with three alternatives, which then the um, city agency departments kind of um, chewed on it and took out another RFP, primarily to look at, uh, look at multiple permutation combinations off of these three alternatives and engaged in environmental planning team. That was a large consultant team. We were not involved in that, but that was a second phase to really look at all the fatal flaws and kind of really look at all the trade-offs. So that's the more recent Better Market Street work that you'll probably see on the website, but it really started with urban design explorations back in 2011 when we led the team. So the, the people that can really put a kibosh on these kind of projects are retailers because they often underestimate how many people arrive by, by transit, by foot, by bike, and overestimate how many people arrive by car, very possibly because they arrive to, in the morning by, by car. So was there any kickback from retailers or perhaps have retailers been wanting this? Right. You know, the, where the Market Street project really concerned itself from building phase to building phase, building phase to building phase. And we want really talking so much about the ground floor uh, uses. But it was uh, it is a known fact that on Market Street, there are segments of Market Street where the retail is really not thriving. The Civic Center area, the mid-market area is kind of... Um, not the most active area and um, we this was actually an opportunity to relook at the experience of the market street so i would say uh, the project did not necessarily concern itself too much with the ground floor retail use but our hope was that the uh, whatever changes we propose would actually work well and be and work in synergy with the ground floor use to for 
the retail users or whatever active users you have on the ground floors, they could find a chance to spill out onto the on Market Street. And, uh, you know, right now or before last Wednesday, Market Street was never a street where you would just sit and uh, linger and enjoy just passerby or watch, watch people and just hang out because it has a lot of traffic and a lot and a, and a lot of um, movement. But um, now with the changes, of course, people will definitely look at an opportunity to kind of really linger, socialize on Market Street. So the hope is that it'll actually help the active users on the ground floor. And you know, Market Street didn't ever did have parking, so retailers like to have on-street parking because they say that helps them with people as they are kind of traversing uh, uh, or commuting on Market Street and they want to kind of stop by. They can pull into an on-street parking and help off and do their uh, run their errand. But Market Street never had a parking lane, so that aspect as wasn't 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 there at all to start with so not a whole lot of conversation around retail pushback as much because um the hope was that this is actually going to improve the situation from where it is right now mm. yeah interesting like a redevelopment so yeah a few years ago for for island press of uh, washington dc i wrote a book called roads were not built for cars so This particular sentence in your blog then jumped out at me because I'll read it back to you. You said streets were never meant to be just streams of vehicles, but unfortunately, somewhere down the line, streets became synonymous with cars. And of course, everybody thinks, you know, that roads were somehow uh, brought out of the ether purely for for motor cars. But of course, as you know, and as I know, because I've written a whole book about it, that's absolutely not the case. Absolutely. I have to read your book. <laughs> I definitely am interested in and, uh, reading it. But you're right. I think, uh, Carlton, you uh, bring up a good point. You know, as urban designers and uh, urban planners, we have these metrics about streets ingrained in our head about travel lanes need to be 10 feet to 13 feet. Uh, parking lanes need to be eight feet wide. And this is the space we need for trees and a five feet wide tree well will actually provide for a healthy mature trees. What we don't have in our head is the space and the metric for human beings. What are the humanist, humanistic metrics that we need to keep in mind as we design streets? For some reason, that's not given any importance or not given any weightage. And we need to kind of rethink that. We need to understand what does it take for a large group to gather? What does it take for a vendor to sell their wares and also have enough space for through pedestrian traffic or movement on the streets and space for somebody to enjoy and watch passes by, just sit and enjoy passes by. So, it would be great if we really start codifying these dimensions and start uh, making streets about people and and not to kind of I, I'm not a strong advocate of saying no vehicles at all. We uh, vehicles are important. I just am feel strongly that it these are streets need to be more democratic spaces and they need to be about all modes 
all ages, all ability. And we need to start designing that way. Hmm. So this is a, a manual problem in that the design yeah. manual say these things and that you, you can't break out of that. So is this something you can break out of this if you want to? You're working within the, the current design manuals. H how do you get around the manual problem? You're right. You're right. I think this is codified in the street manual, design manuals, and the requirements of Bureau of Engineering and um, Public Works. Or Everybody seems to have their ask of the space. But... Uh, as urban designers, we haven't been assertive enough to put our manuals and our kind of ask of the space as strongly. So that's what gets compromised. You get the travel lanes and you get all the flow of traffic and you get the uh, um, you have the space for the utilities. But um, we need to strongly kind of really have advocate for and champion and put together some of clear metrics about people and human beings and uh, what is an enjoyable space and where uh, what space feels constrained. I mean, there are streets around here, not necessarily San Francisco, but in general, there, was, there are four feet sidewalks. That's just inhuman. Mm. So you're right. I think there's definitely a need to, um, and there are guidelines. There are guidelines that organizations like NACTA have put together and have come to come up with really good and clear street design uh, manuals for uh, for different priorities of, uh, of on streets. But um, we need to kind of um, embed that in our thinking and and um, pick that up and practice that more more uh, um, strongly. And then you also need politicians to, to go out on a limb here. So, you know, you said that the Better Market Street project, you know, was was set in train, um, for want of a better expression, 10 years ago. Right. Um, but the very fact it's set in train is important. And you can only set these things in train by political decisions, by by municipal leaders actually wanting to change their streets. Absolutely. Political leadership and political will is, is very important here. And we definitely had a champions on this project right from um, um, the head of city planning, uh, John Brown, when, when he, he was leading this uh, project, to, um, I can come back to you with names that are not on the top of my head right now, but the head of MTA and uh, public works, they were all coming together and they themselves were at, um, were hoping or were kind of having a lot of debate and discussion to make sure that each of the demands from a utility perspective, from transportation perspective, and from an urban design perspective were being kind of met and uh, there were trade-offs and, and conversations around that. But you're right, I think it needs to be, um, it, it needs the train needs to be set off as it needs to kind of be initiated by a whole lot of uh, political kind of um, uh, insight and a political kind of leadership and stewardship and um, In including and especially the mayor yes absolutely yeah i mean and there have been very many mayors that have engaged been engaged in these projects in the last decade and uh, absolutely, the, it has to come from the mayor 
But I would say a lot of the responsibility is shouldered by the city agencies, and they have done a tremendous job in kind of really staying on top of it in making sure that where there was a pushback, either from um, community organizations or if there were either political leaders that were not aligned, they kind of continued to build support around it and, and, and move it forward. Now, I do seem to be doing stories on a rather frequent and a rather pleasing uh, frequent basis about, you know, the, the, the next city to, to, to close streets to, to motor vehicles. So there is, there's absolutely a zeitgeist here, isn't there? There's something in the water right now that this is happening around the world. This is not a San Francisco thing. It's not a New York thing. It's not a Copenhagen thing. It, it's just everywhere almost. Absolutely. And this is not something that is, um, pioneering or trailblazing in any way. I think it's just a little bit of thinking out of the box. It's existed in Europe for forever. I mean, streets that mm-hmm. are prioritized for pedestrians and bicyclists in, in a pro- and uh, giving them a priority. There are examples outside Europe. I mean, I come from India and the city I grew up in is Shimla, which used to be the summer capital of the British Raj, and what you all actually did put in place back in Shimla is still uh, is still in place, and there are the main streets in the mall and the lower mall area are all pedestrian and they're close to traffic, and um, those are such enjoyable spaces. So we don't necessarily need to be kind of really pushing ourselves to think differently. There are really living, beautiful examples all over. It's just that we need to kind of open our eyes to it and really see the many-fold benefits of streets that are uh, less about metal boxes on four wheels and more about people and social connectedness and, and finding ways for... Uh, urban forest that invites the birds and the bugs and the pollinators and really about uh, about making the place that is connected. So if you had a, a blank sheet of paper or if say say you were made mayor tomorrow and you had a, a guaranteed a guaranteed 20 year term in which to, to transform the city, uh, you, you, the absolute um, dictator of the city and you can do what you want, what what would you do? now? Great question. Yes, absolutely. You know, I strongly believe in streets um, actually being uh, places that create or leave um, people with the image of the city they are experiencing. So they are they are the ones that provide the identity of the street. Go to Barcelona, go to whichever city, even in Europe or anywhere else, as a visitor, your image of the city is your experience on the streets. So, and streets are, occupy about 25% to 30% of the city um, area. So, finding ways to kind of really figure out how, what is that connective network that needs to prioritize transit and needs to prioritize pedestrians and people is something that all cities should kind of think about. What is that network? It doesn't mean all streets need to be about really moving away from private vehicles, but what is that? What are those corridors or what is that really rich, robust network of streets that is 
that focuses primarily on transit and focuses focuses primarily for uh, making it more walkable for pedestrians. And uh, finding ways to put energy and put time and money and invest uh, invest in those because beyond parks, streets are the streets are the public spaces where city life unfolds itself. So how do we make this more uh, enjoyable and more pleasant and more comfortable for more people? Um, is something all mayors should focus on, irrespective of the length of their term. Because you're able to impact, positively impact more lives by just making streets more places that um, instill a sense of pride and dignity in in all users, residents and visitors. I, I couldn't agree more, but there is this, this the, the tech bros want autonomous vehicles, want driverless cars in cities. But it does seem that uh, going back to like a European ideal seems to be what's actually going to be get there long before autonomous cars are allowed to drive in cities. You're going to have uh, civilized, people-friendly cities first. Would you would you agree, or do you think the driverless cars will will in effect do what um, early motor cars did to cities, which is rip out their heart? Right. You know, I strongly believe that a problem that involves cars is not necessarily, it cannot necessarily be solved by cars. So yes, we autonomous vehicles will be here pretty soon and we need to find ways to how to leverage the positive aspect of that. But um, interventions or technology that enables us to experience our streets um, as pedestrians and bicyclists in a much more pleasant and comfortable way is something that needs to be prioritized. The app-based ride-hailing um, uh, ride-hailing apps and and just autonomous vehicles and all of those, all of that movement is still focusing on motor vehicles, I feel. And yes, there are um, e-bikes and e-scooters that are providing people other more active modes of kind of getting to their last mile. But um, my hope is that the tech world focuses more on active and and low carbon kind of modes of intervention and um, not have a focus more on, on vehicles because the more you focus on one aspect, you get more of it. If you try to make it smoother for vehicles to move around, you'll probably get you'll still have a lot of motor vehicles in the street if you focus on other modes and try to prioritize your intervention and uh, technology on making it much more comfortable and and safe for other uh, modes you'll probably get more of it so we'll see we'll see where this where it goes but i do think that um Problem or uh, challenges that involve cars can't necessarily be solved with cars, no matter what the tech. Thanks to Kitty Silwell of Perkins Will, San Francisco. Before the second half of the show and that interview with Dr. X, here's my co-host David with information on our show sponsor. Hey, Carlton, thanks so much. And it's it's always my pleasure to talk about our advertiser. This is a long-time loyal advertiser. You all know who I'm talking about. It's Jensen USA at jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. I've been telling you for years now, years, 
that Jensen is the place where you can get a great selection of every kind of product that you need for your cycling lifestyle at amazing prices. And what really sets them apart, because of course there's lots of online retailers out there, but what really sets them apart is their unbelievable support. When you call and you've got a question about something, you'll end up talking to one of their gear advisors. And these are cyclists. I've been there. I've seen it. These are folks who who ride their bikes to and from work. These are folks who ride at lunch, who go out on group rides after work because they just enjoy cycling so much. Uh, and, and so you know that when you call, you'll be talking to somebody who has knowledge of the products that you're calling about. If you're looking for a new bike, whether it's a mountain bike, a road bike, a gravel bike, a fat bike, what are you looking for? Go ahead and check them out. Jensen USA, they are the place where you will find everything you need for your cycling lifestyle. It's jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. We thank them so much for their support and we thank you for supporting Jensen USA. All right, Carlton, let's get back to the show. Thanks, David. And we're back with episode 236 of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. I often record interviews with people for my pieces on Forbes.com, and then I put the audio on this show. But with my next guest, the recording came afterwards. For the second half of this podcast, I'm speaking with a guest who wishes to remain anonymous. He got in touch after reading my Forbes piece headlined driving ban for motorist who steered into cyclist not using shared use cycle path. Uh, this story came from a tweet put out there by Norfolk police, which went a little viral on Twitter, probably because the shocking incident in question was captured on camera. Now, as I'm not naming names, I shall call the cyclist Dr. X because, well, you're a doctor, right? That, yeah, that's right. Um, hello, Carlton. I um, cycle uh, for pleasure and uh, for for exercise, for sport, for competitive sport. And I also, uh, when possible, uh, use my bike to cycle to work. And it was on one of my uh, regular commutes to work where the uh, unfortunate incident uh, occurred. So tell us about that unfortunate incident. So we've, I mean, I'm, I'm, I guess a lot of people have seen the video, but let's let's have the the radio walkthrough of that video. What what happened? So, so um, essentially, uh, cycling to work, and um, if I can paint the picture, um, I. This is this is regular exercise for me, and so I, I'm, uh, as you'll see in the vi- in in the video, cycling at around 18, 19 miles an hour, and in a in a thirty mile an hour zone, when a car pulls up alongside me, a uh, single occupant driver opens the passenger window and starts. Uh, shouting, uh, sharing his displeasure that I was on the road when I should have been on the cycle lane. Um, That's what it's there for. You should use it. Um, And I, I just started to suggest to him, actually, that I had every right to be on the road, Um, at which point he slowed down, and they made a a deliberate attempt to uh, 
I'm not sure whether he was trying to knock me off physically or whether he was just trying to barge me off the road. But um, he, he essentially a- aimed for me um, whilst cycling along at a reasonable speed. And you, uh, you you evaded him basically. So it was that evading yes. action so, so, uh, that saved you from harm. Yes, you you absolutely. And um, you'll see from the clip that um, I had to take uh, significant and quick evasive action. I was quite fortunate; it was a low curb, and so that didn't trip me over. I was able to go right to the edge of the road um, and avoided contact. Aware that if I had contacted his car that I'm sure weighs several tons, um, a cyclist in Lycra was going to come off worse. Um, And so it was just quick thinking, dived off to the left and managed to avoid it. He clearly didn't stop and uh, drove off up the road. But there was a motorist videoing it on a dash cam. Well, um, I didn't didn't know at the time, so I... I, um, turned uh, to, I don't know, I, I suppose in, in such amazement that somebody had done this and the gentleman in the car behind waved at me and then, and then overtook and I thought, oh, never mind, he, he saw it, but there's nothing that either of us can do about this. And it's only a, a, a mile further up the road, I find him stopped in the lay-by and... Such is my uh, opinion, really, of of riding along that road. I thought, here I go again, we're going to have yet another heated debate about shared cycle paths. Uh, But no, he stopped me, told me that he drove for a living, and he'd got dash cams and was prepared to support me contacting the Norfolk police which I did. I'm very grateful to the Norfolk Police. They took a statement and and used the dash cam video to secure a prosecution. We'll kind of get on to the prosecution in a minute in that it potentially wasn't uh, the, the, the best outcome, uh, considering it was, you know, violence uh, with, a, with a weapon. But I'd like to know about that particular cycle path because it was formerly... A pavement. It was formerly a sidewalk. It was formerly where only pedestrians would go, and then the council changed it. Absolutely. So, so um, it's a, a thirty mile an hour zone um, with houses either side, and um, it, it 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 is a pavement. The the, the council uh, painted re, re, resurfed top, put some top dressing on it, repainted it. And all of a sudden, overnight, it has become a uh, cycle path lane um, in in the uh, general public's eyes. Um, unfortunately, it, it, it really isn't fit for purpose. Um, it stops and starts at every road junction. You, you, you have absolutely no priority. Um, along this footpath at 7.30 in the morning when people are trying to cycle for exercise, cycling to, to work. There are pedestrians uh, walking children to school. You have people walking dogs with extendable leads. 
you have people queuing at the bus stop, and worst of all, you have cars coming out of their homes, out of their driveways, that they cannot see across the footpath into the road. So you can imagine that trying to cycle along that bit of footpath at anything more than walking pace is unsafe both for the cyclist but also for the many pedestrians that use the footpath as a footpath. So sadly, um, it's not used and as cyclists, we use the road which much to the displeasure of a small group of motorists. Now, you, if that if that was um, miraculously made better, you had priority, um, there was protection, you, you would use that um, infrastructure. You're not, like, against using infrastructure. I mean, there are bits of this, this route which are good. So, so a mile up the road, the cycle path... Um, uh, takes a, a, a 20 meter detour away from the edge of the road and is wide, is, is protected from vehicles, and all the cyclists use that, use that bit of le- cycle path because it's safe, it's fit for purpose, and um, it protects the, the cyclists and allows, allows the traffic to flow on the road and allows the cyclists to cycle at their speed uh, safely, without detours, without uh, any any concerns, really. So that, that aggression that you faced on that day, uh, we, we can pretty much lay the blame, of course, at that driver who shouldn't be doing uh, what he was doing, but also at the council for doing a bit of a duff job. Um, yes. That it, it does feel as though um, that bit of the cycle lane is very much an afterthought and very much aimed at, um, I, I don't know who, <laughs> because if all the cyclists came off the road onto the cycle path, I, I am absolutely convinced that we would have complaints from those people trying to walk their children to school, from those people trying to stand waiting for the for the bus to work. Sadly, though, the very presence of this of the cycle lane appears to have given a, a small minority of motorists um, or, almost a license to to either use verbal abuse or hooting of the horns. Every day, somewhere along there, someone takes exception to a cyclist using the road. And it's turned um, what used to be a very uh, stress-relieving, enjoyable ride. Often, I I, I find myself getting more wound up, not de-stressed. Now, what do you think about the fact that the driver got a 12-month driving ban but not a conviction for assault using, in effect, a weapon? Well, I'm not a lawyer and I haven't – so I I haven't studied the law and I don't – 
know the definition of a weapon. What I do know is that if he'd shot a gun out of the window and missed or thrown a knife out of the window and missed, I'm pretty sure that he wouldn't have been dealt with with a driving ban. Um, Using a vehicle, as he did, is an offence, is in my layman's terms, using his car car as an offensive weapon. Mm. Now, don't get me wrong, um, I'm very grateful that the Norfolk Police have taken some action based on the, the dash cam footage. I'm very grateful to the member of the public who, who submitted that footage. But I just, I, I, I do wonder if um, we need some clarity on whether a vehicle is a weapon or not. And looking at that footage, it, it clearly does look like one. Hmm. Now, on that particular stretch of, of, of cycle path, do you think the solution to stopping that kind of aggression from that motorist and others will be just to take away the, the, the cycle markings there? Or do you think they could, if they wanted to, actually put some good infrastructure in there uh, instead? What, what, what would you like the council to do? Well, I, I, as... as um, uh, someone who cycles a lot of miles, I'm reasonably confident sharing a road with other users. But there are a whole spectrum of cyclists. And if I had, um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be comfortable with my young children cycling along that, that path as it is. Cars, you know, cars can come blind out of their driveways and uh, disaster could strike. So catering for the uh, majority of, of cyclists, I think that we do need some uh, a cycle lane there. It, it is a potentially quite a busy road. It has been slowed with uh, speed restrictions, but it is a busy road and it is a commute route from... Uh, Windham in towards Norwich, past Heatherset. So we, it is a popular cycle route. And so there is absolutely no reason why, with some proper planning, yes, it will be more expensive, but we should have proper cycle facilities from Heatherset all the way into Norwich. It's been demonstrated that they can do it. We, we, there is a section that we've already alluded to that's fantastic. The reason why that bit um, is so good is because there's a historic oak tree with with all sorts of protection orders on that they couldn't bypass any other way other than spending a significant amount of money to produce a proper proper cycle path. Mm. Because the council did... I, mean, I was looking at the press reports from like a couple of years ago, which which said that the council actually downgraded the plans. So there were there were better 
plans in place for this particular stretch and they downgraded them. Right. Um, well, this um, is a classic example of, of what happens when you do that. And if you'd turn the camera uh, 180 degrees from the view that you see of me, you will see that I've just psychopassed a brand new housing estate that's being built. And so the, uh, for starters, they could have, there's a lot of people there building. Could we have done something before the, once the housing estate is built, I can understand it becomes very much more difficult, but we are actively building in that area. Mm. So there's no excuse for not building proper infrastructure and two, secondly, um, there are going to be more houses, which means more people, and those people are going to be commuting into the main areas of work from Wyndham. How far is it from Wyndham to Norwich? Even though I know that, because it's, I- a, ten, it's a it's a ten, it's a perfect distance. It's a ten mile cycle ride. Mm-hmm. Now I understand many people may may see that as uh, quite a long way, but with the e-bike technology and and i and either pass or am passed several times on my journey by people on e-bikes so so that is the future we have to look at uh sustainable transport but if we are unable to share the road and you know let's face it we have we are entitled to share the road but if we are unable to share the road safely either because of the perception of drivers or because of the physical size and congestion on the roads, then we have to have proper cycle infrastructure. What we can't have is footpaths with with bicycles painted on the tarmac. Thanks to Dr X there. His story was picked up by the local press and I was invited to discuss the case on BBC Radio Norfolk with presenter Chris Gorham. As you'll hear, my opinions of the incident aren't terribly dissimilar to Dr X's. And now a driver in Norfolk has been banned for a year after deliberately swerving into a cyclist. The police have tweeted footage of the incident, which happened to be recorded uh, on a dash cam by a following vehicle. It is quite a shocking incident. Uh, you can see a car on the Heatherset Road between Wyndham and Norwich pull alongside the bike, stay there for a little while, and then deliberately swerve into the rider. Many have responded to uh, the Twitter post with anger at the leniency of a driving ban and the £300 fine. Um, but some have decided that the, the bike not being on the, the cycle path which runs next to that road was more upsetting. Let's talk to Carlton Reed, who runs at the website Bike Biz and writes on uh, Transport for the Forbes website. Thanks for coming on this morning, Carlton. Good morning, Chris. Uh, good to talk to you. Uh, this, this incident in particular, very shocking, very extreme. Um, but from, from your, your followers, the people that, that, that get in touch with you, how typical is this of what cyclists have to face on, on roads up and down the country? Well, I guess 10 years ago, it would have been as common as it is now, but you wouldn't have had the evidence. So nobody believed cyclists that this was happening. The, the prevalence now of dash cams, both by you know, cyclists using them and, you know, in this case, motorists using them, is showing that cyclists were telling the truth all, all the time and that they are having these kinds of um, awful aggression uh, shown to them for absolutely no no 
just cause. So it's 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 frighteningly common, unfortunately. The, the issue seems to be that there was a, a cycle path next to the road that the cyclist, quite within their rights, had decided not to use. So uh, I suppose from a driver, I've, I've had this situation recently as a driver and not a cyclist, where I've been driving along and I've seen a bike on the road when there is a cycle path. And it does make you go, oh, I wonder why they're not using the cycle path. So obviously, you don't then take, take things into your own hands, because you, you know, but you're worried about hitting them as it is. So w- why would a, a, a cyclist not use a, a cycle path when there is one available? Let's, let's put it a, a different way, first of all. If there's a parallel road next to a motorway, would you get really annoyed with a motorist who chose to use the parallel road and not the motorway? Of course you wouldn't. It's just the choice is there to use the road or to use the motorway. So it's the same for the cyclist. There's no rule to say that you must use that particular bit of infrastructure. This particular bit of infrastructure, as it happens, is poor. That's why the cyclist wasn't using it. So it's called a shared use path. So it's not like a dedicated, protected cycleway at all. It's a, it's a pavement, in effect, a sidewalk, is, as I would say to my Forbes readers. And the cyclist, who was a fast road cyclist, who's very capable of doing 25 miles an hour, really shouldn't be on a, a, a footpath, in effect, shared with pedestrians. So that cyclist was absolutely correct to be where he was. Because if there's pedestrians on that, that, that path, do you really want to be on a footpath, which is a common complaint, of why are cyclists on footpaths? Well, here's the cyclist is not on the footpath um, and has chosen to ride on the road. Also, mm. because there are lots and lots of driveways coming out, there's lots of side roads. So that cyclist would be, would be impeded the constant length of the Heatherset Road if he didn't go on the, uh, on the road. And motorists, I'm sure, would not want to be impeded every five metres. So that's why the cyclist was there. I think it's a really interesting side side point to this is that we have lots of cycle lanes being put in in, in Norfolk and there's been loads of roadworks in Norwich to put them in, but sometimes they're not necessarily that well designed, are they? And, and, and they're not actually fit for purpose. Exactly. If, if you design the infrastructure, if you design the, the cycleway uh, to be wide, protected with curbs, for instance, and critically, if it goes past junctions, and allows the cyclist to carry on in safety, then I guarantee cyclists will use them. Of course they'll use them. Uh, it's when this infrastructure is, is poorly designed. That's why people don't, don't use them. So in London, for instance, I mean, I live in Newcastle. Actually, I used to live in, 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 in Norwich, but uh, I now live in Newcastle. But in London, when, when you go down there and you see the incredibly well-behaved cyclists now uh, using the cycleways, and they are flocking to the to the wide, protected, curb-protected cycleways. And they're no longer using the roads quite so much because they have got very, very good infrastructure. So cyclists will use the infrastructure if it's good. This particular example in Wyndham is terrible. That's why the cyclist is not using it. And the fact that the motorist has taken it into his or her own, I'm assuming it's a him, uh, that's, that's, that's a, a big presumption, um, took it into into his own um, powers to somehow demand that a cyclist use this very shoddy bit of infrastructure and did not get a custodial sentence is amazing. Because if that motorist outside of his or her car used a knife to do the exact same thing they've done, a car can be a weapon, 
then they would have had at least six months, perhaps a year in jail. And all they've got, and I know people think this is an incredible sentence, it is not. All that person got was 12-month uh, driving ban, which is, I think to any reasonable person, is a travesty of justice. That's the view you've had from, uh, I know, from a lot of your, your followers on social media, isn't it? That actually when things like this do happen, cyclists are not protected enough. And, and there are a lot of people who would like to have seen a, a more stringent sentence here. Well, just you've got to use the example that a car can be used as a weapon. They frequently are. You often hear people actually being killed uh, deliberately by somebody driving into them um, uh, in many incidents in, around the country. So as a weapon, if you wield that weapon, deliberately try and harm somebody. In this particular example, perhaps the cyclist wasn't actually hit. But just imagine that person was using uh, the weapon of choice was a knife. That, that I'm sure all of your listeners will be saying, well, that person should be in jail. Was a car... And then half listeners are maybe saying, no, well, that, that was perfectly fine for that motorist to do that. They wouldn't say that if that person was using a knife. So that's the analogy you've got to get your head around. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't think we've got many people saying it's perfectly fine for the drivers to do that. But I, I, I take the point, Carlton. Thanks, thanks for joining us. I know this has prompted a lot of reaction. Um, nice of you to join us on the line. Now that I know you're in Newcastle, I'm not worried. That was me with BBC Radio Norfolk's Chris Gorham. Thanks to my guests, Dr. X and San Francisco's Gitty Silwell of Perkins Will. Show notes, including full transcripts and relevant links, including to our show sponsor, Jensen USA, can be found at the-spokesmen.com. And you've been listening to episode 236 of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast, which has been bringing you eclectic cycling-themed audio since a positively antediluvian... 2006. Thanks for listening. If you're new to the show, please consider subscribing in your favourite podcast catcher. Meanwhile, get out there and ride. <laughs>